Father, this is our third week learning from John the Baptist and how much we have to learn. I pray that you would take this morning and as the elders prayed together before this gathering, do exceedingly and abundantly more than anything we could ever ask or think. Would you please use your word and lift up your son, the one who is mightier than John. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to know that we have met with you today and that we would, each of us would receive precisely what we need to in this morning. Some of us come in great need of encouragement and help and hope, and I pray that you would deliver that. I pray too, Father, for those who need a, a, a word of conviction, that they need the word uh, not just to sing into their lives, but to sting in their lives in some particular way. I pray, Spirit, that you would uh, use this message to that effect. Do the work now in lifting up Jesus as we open our Bibles and seek to feast on what's in front of us now. We pray this for the glory of His name, for the upbuilding and ingathering of uh, your church, and for our mission to be and make disciples. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. In 1 Peter 3.15, the Apostle Peter famously summons his Christian readers to anticipate, to imagine the day in their lives when somebody from outside the faith would look on their walk with the Lord and approach them and say something along these lines, I have to know, what is it about you? What makes you so refreshingly different from everybody else in my life? I live in this world like you do, and I just have to know, where is your hope coming from? And so in 1 Peter 3.15, the apostle commands us to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who would ask us for a reason for the hope that is in us. So here's my question for you and for me today. When is the last time an unbeliever asked you for that? Or we can ask the question another way. If you're a Christian, has an unbeliever ever asked that question of you? Because Peter just takes it for granted that that will be part of the warp and woof of our our lives. In the broader counsel of 1 Peter, he includes always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So when's the last time that you had an opportunity to make such a defense? Because I take it for granted that there may be some here among us, if not many this morning, who would count ourselves disciples of Jesus, and yet we rarely if at all, experience the situation to which Peter is referring. And if this happens to be you, I'd like to see if I could be used of the Lord to bring some encouragement to you today. I believe that the reason why unbelievers do not ask us with any more frequency to give, us, to give them a reason for the hope that is in us is owing to two central aspects of our witness— the first has to do with clarity, and the second has to do with costliness. 
So let's cut right to the chase this morning. Here's the big idea today. The incomparable value of Jesus Christ is seen both in the clarity and in the cost of our personal witness to Him. The incomparable value of Jesus Christ is seen both in the clarity and in the cost of our personal witness to Him. This morning we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Luke, a series entitled Dear Theophilus, a study of the Gospel of Luke. And our text today is in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. And if you haven't turned there, I will invite you to do so at this time. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. If you'd like to use one of the, the red Bibles from underneath the seats, the text begins starting on page 858 in the red Bibles, page 858. Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. So there's, there's three points today. Two of them are examples that are drawn from today's text, and the final is an application that we want to seek to press home to our lives. It's, it's rooted in the application of this text and also in the broader flow of the, the New Testament. The incomparable value of Jesus is seen in both the clarity and the cost of our personal witness to Him. So here's the first, here's the first point today. Example number one, John, John the Baptist, John knew the greatness of Jesus, and therefore his witness to him was clear, and it was costly. John knew the greatness of Jesus, and therefore his witness to him was clear, and it was costly. Would you follow along with me as I read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 15 to 20? Luke 3, beginning in verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. John knew the greatness of Jesus, and this was seen in both the clarity and the cost of his witness to him. This is week three on John the Baptist. We began our study of this man and his ministry two weeks ago, where we learned that the soul-winning ministry of John the Baptist reminds us that the message of the gospel actually unfolded in space-time history. The message of the gospel actually aims to change people's lives, not just eternities, and the message of the gospel actually contains past and future fulfillments of of ancient biblical prophecy. So the takeaway two weeks ago was if your evangelistic passion for your list of five has become too wet to burn, then these truths in Luke 3, 1 to 6 are a flamethrower for us. Last week, we heard a sampling of John's preaching to his listeners in John chapter 3, verses 7 to 14. And if you were here with us last week, you may remember 
that John the Baptist in his ministry serves to shake us and to wake us to the undeniable reality that there is a judgment coming. And if we or the people in our lists of five expect to be saved from that judgment, then we all must come to understand, number one, the non-negotiable necessity of true repentance. And secondly, we must come to experience, we all must come to experience the wonderful reality of true repentance. And that brings us to verse 15. John's listeners, to put it mildly, are on edge. Some are threatened, others are thrilled, but nobody is indifferent. John's message about repentance and forgiveness of sins has people thinking and wondering in their hearts, according to verse 15, whether he might be the Christ. Now, this is interesting because John's, of course, not omniscient. He does not have exhaustive knowledge of their hearts by any stretch. And yet, according to verses 15 and 16, they lead us to believe that he has a pretty good idea of what's in their hearts. According to verse 15, this question of whether or not John was the Christ was something that he anticipated and was happening in their hearts, it says. It's not something that they they verbalized to him. All the same, verse 16 plainly says, John answered them, meaning he anticipated what they were thinking about him. And it's the speculation that John is in a hurry to disarm. John says to the crowd in verse 16, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What's John doing here? At the very least, I think we could say that he's seeking to distance himself from Jesus. And of course, not because he's ashamed of the Lord, but rather the reverse. These folks are so convicted about John's message of repentance that they're wondering if John himself is the Messiah. And John has to explain to them, look, you've you've got it backward. I I am baptizing with water only, but there's somebody who's coming who will baptize you on the interior of your life with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity of God Himself. 16th century reformer Huldrych Zwingli paraphrases John's concern this way by saying, strictly speaking, John says, I pour water onto the body. I cannot change a mind or a heart. I bathe the body with outward water, but I am not truly able to illuminate or confirm the Holy Spirit internally? That's exactly right. That is, that is precisely what John is saying. It's amazing to think. John was so full of the Holy Spirit, and yet he was unable to impart the Holy Spirit to another. You should take heart in that as you think about evangelism. But he says, as he draws the contrast between him and Jesus, he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So, in the first century, among the many duties that a servant would have with his master would be the rather commonplace, practically daily experience of untying the sandal thong of the the master and proceeding to wash his feet. It was a messy job, but it was the role of a first century servant to do this for his master. And what John is saying here is not only is he not the Christ, he's also saying that he's not even qualified to do this lowliest of first century tasks for him. This is above John's pay grade. John speaks highly of Jesus and lowly of himself. It's actually an echo of John 3.30 where 
we read, he must increase, but I must decrease. John knew the greatness of Jesus, and his witness to him was, was clear. But that's not all. Not only does John speak of the power of Christ in conferring the Holy Spirit upon persons in salvation, he also speaks of the severity of Christ in justly condemning people to judgment who resist their rightful claim, or his rightful claim on their lives. Verse 17 is sharply stated, isn't it? The imagery is not exactly vague. It is crisp and it's penetrating. John says of Jesus in verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John's day, the first century, was an agrarian culture, a a farming people, and so this was an apt image. He compares the, the work of Jesus Uh, to that of a a farmer during harvest. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach explains, the the winnowing fork was a wooden fork-like shovel used to lift the grain into the air so that the wind or the winnowing fan could separate the wheat from the chaff. The heavier, usable grain would fall directly down onto the threshing floor while the lighter, useless chaff would be blown away. And Bach concludes, he says, Jesus is ready to divide among people. Just as wheat is saved for the storehouse, so those who draw near to Jesus will be spared. But also, just as the chaff is tossed to the wind and gathered and burned, so will the fate of those who, receive, who refuse Jesus' hand already. The picture indicates not only will the separation within humanity take place, but a clearing up of the threshing floor. Jesus' purging begins a decisive judgment. So people may be mistaking John for the Christ, but John himself was under no such illusions. John's ministry, as powerful it was at the end of the day, was merely one of words and one of water. But he was sure of this, one who is mightier than he is coming, and that clarity was not lost on his listeners. Nor was it lost on King Herod. Now, Mark tells us something about Herod that Luke doesn't, and it's a fascinating piece of the puzzle. Um, in Mark's gospel, gospel of Mark chapter 6, verse 30, it says that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. Isn't that wild? Herod's actually drawn to John's preaching. The Bible says that Herod heard him gladly. While it may be true that Herod feared John, evidently it's also true that John didn't fear Herod, and so he levels with him. Look at verses 18 to 20. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that he had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So here's the situation. Herod and his wife Herodias both left previous spouses to come together to one another. And not only that, but Herodias was previously married to Herod's half-brother, also named Herod. And John lets him have it. Herod has married his sister-in-law. And John called Herod to repent. He called him to turn away from his sin, to change his mind about his wickedness. 
And instead of repenting, Herod adds evil to evil by throwing John into prison, and his heart is hardened another turn. John goes to prison and to an eventual death for his friend, his cousin, Jesus. And why? Because John knew the greatness of Jesus, and therefore his witness to him was clear and it was costly. The incomparable value of Jesus Christ is seen both in the clarity and in the cost of our personal witness to Him. In his excellent autobiography entitled Reckless Abandon, uh, David Sitton, who is a career missionary to the unreached peoples of Papua New Guinea, writes this, "'Violent faith such as this is dangerous to the kingdom of darkness.'" When we no longer live in fear of death, we are liberated to glorify God in a more powerful way. We walk into the world wielding the faith of weak and foolish lambs against voracious and clever lions. But this is precisely God's strategy for victory. God always conquers through weakness, death, and resurrection. It's by God's power and through the blood of the Lamb and through the blood of His lambs that the kingdom advances throughout the world. And Sitton concludes with this, if you have never considered the possibility that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your death, perhaps you should. He had a wonderful plan for the death of His Son. End quote. Indeed. Amen and amen. John knew the greatness of Jesus and therefore his witness to Him was clear and it was costly. Here's the second example before we go to application. Second example this morning is this. God knew the greatness of Jesus, and therefore His witness to Him was clear, and it was costly. God knew the greatness of Jesus, and therefore His witness to Him was clear, and it was costly. Look with me at our text once again, verses 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. So, God, not just John, God knew the greatness of Jesus, and therefore His witness to Him was clear and it was costly. But verse 21, it includes both the baptism of John's disciples and the baptism of Jesus Himself. And in one particular exchange that Luke leaves out, but Matthew bears witness to, Um, we learn about an exchange, a conversation that took place between John and Jesus just before Jesus' baptism. In Matthew 3, verses 14 to 15, we read, John would have prevented Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. This is helpful for us to remember because... According to Luke chapter 3, verse 3, this is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why was Jesus baptized? How can he who has no sin repent from sin? How can he who knew no sin 
be forgiven of sin. Obviously, John understands that on one level and that John is a much more fit candidate for baptism than Jesus ever is in one sense. But that's where Jesus' answer to John in Matthew 3.15 is so helpful. What does he tell John? He says to him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Why did Jesus get baptized? I can think of three reasons and maybe a fourth here in our text. First, I think in getting baptized, Jesus lends his seal of approval to John's ministry. Jesus is in John's camp. He's not against him. Secondly, in getting baptized, Jesus makes it clear that his desire is to associate with sinful people who need forgiveness from the very beginning of his own ministry. And third, Jesus' baptism reminds us that his atonement for our sins didn't just include his passive suffering and death on the cross for us. Jesus' atonement actually included also his active living for us, the righteousness that he earned for us. His baptism is important for a number of reasons. And if all of that wasn't compelling enough, we also have what the text in front of us says today, which it seeks to highlight. And that would be the descent of the Holy Spirit of God in order to rest on Jesus and then the public audible voice of God the Father in order to affirm Jesus. So verse 22, And the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. And with you I am well pleased. Now, let none of us miss this morning that here in verse 22, we have all three members of the Trinity active in one moment in space and time. The Father's voice from heaven, the Son undergoing baptism, the Spirit descending descending in bodily form as a dove. We could press in here with a lot of profit, probably in either direction, into the Holy Spirit's descent or into the voice of God the Father. But since Luke lends such a strong emphasis to the Holy Spirit throughout the Gospel of Luke, in fact, when we get to chapter 4, we'll begin to take a very close look at the Holy Spirit. Let's press in instead unto the voice that we hear in verse 22, the perspective of the voice of heaven, the point of view of God the Father. In the second half of verse 22, we hear a voice of God from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. You know, it's interesting, there are three recorded instances of the voice of God the Father bearing witness to God the Son in the Gospels. And in every single instance, Jesus is praying just prior to that public proclamation by the Father. Verse 21 of our text says that Jesus was praying and the heavens were opened. By the way, do you think that's a coincidence? (laughs) That Jesus was praying and then the heavens opened? Heaven listens to Jesus. Just six chapters later on the Mount of Transfiguration, we learn in Luke 9, 28 to 20, that Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. He was praying. And then the Bible says in Luke 9, 35, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Then once more, in the Gospel of John this time, Jesus is praying. It's John 12, 28. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So what's happening in each of these scenes? Well, what's happening is that God knows the greatness of His his Son and His witness to Him is 
perfectly clear. The Father loves the Son, so He owns Him publicly. The incomparable value of Christ is seen in the clarity of God the Father's personal witness to Him. So, the Father's witness to the Son was clear. But was it costly? Answer? Yes. In fact, there was nothing more costly than the Father's witness to the Son. We speak of the baptism of Jesus as if there's only one, but that's not true. There are two baptisms of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke is quite clear on this. And it was Jesus' second baptism where the price that both He and His Father would pay would become so evident. In Luke chapter 12, verse 50, some nine chapters after Jesus' water baptism, Jesus says this. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. The, the word baptizo in Greek means to literally to dip or to immerse or to plunge someone into something. And if Jesus was immersed and plunged into water at John's baptism, just what is He anticipating being immersed into in the future? You know what it was. It was His baptism into suffering and death. On the cross, Jesus was baptized into the penalty that each of us deserves for our sin. That's why he says in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. I mean, it puts fresh perspective on a verse like John 3, 16, isn't it? That God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you know what Jesus did for you on that cross? Are you aware of the price that's been paid for you? Do you know Jesus? I'm not asking, do you know about Jesus? I'm asking, do you know Him? You can. You can know Him today. Now, you may be thinking, look, I'm looking over this past week of my life. I'm not even pleased with my life. I don't see how God could ever be pleased with mine. And if you're thinking that way, I invite you to take another look at verse 22 and just ask you this question. Are you pleased with Jesus? That's the question. Because as God looks on Christ, it is clear that He is certainly pleased with Him. And if you are pleased with Christ, then God is pleased with you. That's the gospel. So turn from your sin and place your faith definitively in the cross work of Jesus Christ for you, His baptism into suffering and death. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus, and you can come to Him today. You can put your faith in Him today and be born again. Do you know the greatness of Jesus? One thing is for sure, God knew the greatness of Jesus. He was clear about it, and it was costly for Him. Now, let me offer one kind of final summary application to these two examples. So the incomparable value of Jesus Christ is seen both in the clarity and the cost of our personal witness to Him. John knew the greatness of Jesus, and therefore his witness to Him was clear and costly. God knew the greatness of Jesus, and therefore his witness to Him was clear, and it was costly. Therefore, if we know the greatness of Jesus, our 
witness to him will be clear and it will be costly. If we know the greatness of Jesus Christ, our witness to him will be clear and it will be costly. Jesus says in Luke 9, verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and of his holy angels. Let's just agree that this is not something that we want to experience on the last day, right? I don't know about you, but this moves me. This verse motivates me as few realities in the New Testament do to speak up and to speak of my Savior. If we are ashamed of Jesus in this life, Jesus will be ashamed of us in the next. It's that simple. So let's not be ambiguous or ill-defined or vague about our allegiance to Christ in public, among friends, among family. So much of our witness, I think, suffers from far too much nebulous thinking about him. And if it's nebulous thinking, then it's going to be nebulous feeling and nebulous talking. So get it straight in your head who he is and in your heart, and then and only then out of your mouth will he come clear. In one of my favorite sermons from yesteryear, a Scottish pastor by the name of Horatius Bonar once preached on on Paul in Acts 18, verses 9 to 11, and the sermon is titled, Safety and Success in Our Work work for God. Bonar summarizes uh, clarity as opposed to vagary in our witness to Jesus this way. He says, fear not are Christ's words to his ministers in all ages. Whatever be the power or the rage or the number of enemies, fear not. Speak out. Do not be dumb. Speak out fearlessly and nobly, confidently the words of truth, the message of God, the gospel of His grace. Let not the fear of man bring a snare. Shrink not. Preach no deluded half-and-half gospel. Let not your trumpet give an uncertain sound. Speak so that no man shall mistake your meaning or your message. Do not blunt or muffle your words as if afraid of creating too great an alarm or rousing men too rudely or cutting them too deeply. Speak aloud and speak clearly, not mistily or circuitously with enticing words of man's wisdom. Speak with authority and like wisdom cry aloud that the church as well as the world should hear. Whether they like the sound of it or not, lift up your voice and utter your testimony. Obey your Lord and deliver your soul. Don't you need steel like that in your backbone? I do. That's wonderful. So clarity is something we should strive for. It's also something, if you're struggling with it in your witness, it's something you should pray for. And we can take heart too. This is something that the Apostle Paul himself prayed for. In Colossians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul begs the prayers of the church in Colossae, and right at the top of his list is prayer for clarity, that he just get the message clear. Colossians 4, 2, and 3 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am prisoned. And then he says, That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. If Paul struggled with clarity, I think we can take heart. The Apostle Paul placed a premium on clarity. He prized it, and he asked that others would pray for him, that he would make it clear. 
We cannot afford to do any less today. So if we know the greatness of Jesus, our witness to him this week will be clear. It'll be clear. Secondly, if we know the greatness of Jesus, our witness to him will be costly. Our witness to Jesus will be costly. 2 Timothy 3.12 puts it perhaps most simply. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Three things about that verse. First, notice the scope of it. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Secondly, notice the certainty of it. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Third, notice the severity of it. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We will be. Count on it. It's part of the fabric of the life of each and every Christ follower. Jesus said in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. In other words, if we're not being persecuted, something's gone wrong, radically wrong in our following of Jesus. So John's witness to Jesus cost him. God's witness to Jesus cost him. What does your witness to Jesus cost you? If we know the greatness of Jesus, our witness to him will be clear and it will be costly. Let's sum up. The incomparable value of Jesus Christ is seen both in the clarity and in the cost of our personal witness to him. John knew the greatness of Jesus and therefore his witness to him was clear and costly. God knew the greatness of his son, therefore his witness was clear and costly. So, if we know the greatness of Jesus, our witness to him will be clear and it will be costly. Not a difficult message to understand. Nevertheless, a challenging one for each of us to apply. The more you are captured by the magnificence of Jesus, the more natural it will feel to be unsubtle and definite in your words about him. And the more that you are captured by the magnificence of Christ, the more willing you will be to pay the price happily for your allegiance to him. The next week, we trace the family lineage of our Savior as we study the genealogy of Jesus Christ that Luke includes for us here in this gospel. And I especially want to challenge you to come back here next Sunday um, because if you've ever found yourself working through a, a Bible reading plan and you hit the genealogy section, what are you often tempted to do? Skip right over it, right? We're going to learn next week how a genealogy, far from being a, a boring list of the names of dead people, is actually documentation for the most exciting part of the story. Our mission and vision is absolutely riveted on this issue of understanding all that Jesus did and taught, and a genealogy of Jesus weaves the ministry and the message of him right into the fabric of the biblical storyline like nothing else can. And I'm already looking forward to next week. But right now, let's hit the pause button and let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, far too often we are guilty of vagary in our witness to Jesus. 
in, in taking the soft option and avoiding difficult conversations or difficult situations. I pray, Father, that John the Baptist over these last few weeks and, and on into the weeks ahead, just by the power of your Holy Spirit, just give these messages an extra lifespan by the power of your Spirit in our church that you would create a tremendous amount of joy and boldness and openness and candor and frankness and clarity in our speaking of Jesus with people within our sphere of influence. Lord, do something surprising this week. Open a door for the word, as Paul says, and let us make it clear. We don't get any points for being vague. Help us to be clear about Jesus. And then, Lord, let us remember that the chips, to some degree, are just going to fall. And, and some people will be threatened and will be driven away by this message of grace. And yet others, Lord, wonderfully, powerfully, fantastically will be drawn in by your sovereign hand. And at that moment, Lord, we, we would be willing to pay any price that other people would simply come to know the Jesus that we've come to know. Lord, our mission, our 2020 vision, it's all riding on this. If we know the greatness of Jesus Christ, may we be led this week to great clarity and to endure any cost that we might make him known. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.